We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a It's time to have a thoughtful, insightful, intelligent, data-driven conversation about squad building. What does that have to do with Arsenal? We're not entirely sure. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. So, uh, we have a really exciting podcast for you. Uh, Clive has been recorded. He will be down the line. Uh, but we have a special guest today, and I think it ties into a lot of the things we've been talking about. Because this time of year, thankfully, there's no football to make us miserable but there are transfer rumors to make us miserable. Uh, so we will be talking transfers. We'll talk a little bit about squad building and review the season as a whole uh, with Ted Knutson, who is the founder and CEO of StatsBomb, one of the premier uh, sort of advanced analytics stats. And and uh, I can let him explain his firm a little bit more to you. Companies on the Planet, he also does the StatsBomb podcast, which you should listen to. And you can find Ted on Twitter at MixedKnuts. Uh, hello, Ted. Hey, how are you? Uh, I butchered the explanation of what your firm does, uh, mainly because it's probably beyond my comprehension, my limited comprehension. But would you say that that's sort of a, at least a starting point for what you do? Analytics and consulting uh, in football. Uh, I used to work for Brentford and Michelin. And we've then, after I left there, I, well, actually before then, I, I worked in uh, professional gambling for a decade. Uh, but then after I left Michelin and Brentford, I uh, started up StatsBomb as a company as opposed to just a blog, which started in 2013. Uh, 2013. And uh, yeah, so we work with teams from like the the bottom of the English sort of league pyramid all the way up to the top tier of the Champions League, including like PSG. Uh, if you watch the LAFC documentary, you might have seen some of our stuff there as well. 
so we consult kind of all around the world. Uh, but yeah, we, we have data and analytics and we use that to guide our football recommendations. Fantastic. Um, I don't know if you saw it apropos of nothing, but David ha- uh, Hill wrote an article for The Ringer that everyone should read, and I'm sure you would love if you haven't read it already, called The Rise and Fall of the Professional Sports Better, um, talking about how sort of William Hill and the European model has been destroying sports betting. So it might be something that people would find interesting. Um, but so let, let's dive into Arsenal, and I, I think I can disclose that Arsenal is near and dear to your heart, right? So I am technically a fan, even if it's uh, occasionally a rocky relationship. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and this season sort of pushed it to its limits. So I guess we should start just first of all with Unai Emery. I'm curious, you know, we, we did two different podcasts around the time uh, Emery was announced as the candidate. I think it took us a little warming up to the idea. We had sort of been excited by the unknown that was Arteta and kind of diving into a project that was sort of unknowable and and he was an Arsenal guy and someone that I think people were interested to see whether proximity to Pep Guardiola, any of that genius had rubbed off on him, but it wound up being Emery. When that was announced, I mean, did you have any preconceived ideas about Emery as a coach and what your thoughts were about him becoming the coach at Arsenal? It's probably easier if I explain my stance on Arteta. Uh, So I, I know people in and around the club um, and have for a while. We run in similar circles. Sometimes I even get to talk to them in person, but um and the the feedback from people inside the club was that he's really bright. And uh, actually, I, then I know people from around Man City or some people who worked with Arteta on his licenses. And they also had like positive things to say. And so with that and knowing that he worked under Wenger and also had worked under under Pep Guardiola for a couple of years and knowing that Arsenal actually needed to kind of enter a rebuild. I was really excited by the Arteta idea. I was like, look. There's, there's like no real cost to this in the sense that, you know, you might be getting a huge upside coach. You're probably not getting a downside coach. Uh, we're not expecting that much from Arsenal this year because there's some squad rebuilding that needs to be done because the tail end of the years of, of Wenger like sort of had some decay, not unlike Alex Ferguson's tail end years. And, and so, like, I was actually really on board with that. And then it didn't happen. And I was very frustrated with it. And I kind of it, I said a tweet, I think maybe last June that my worry about Arsenal was that they would lose kind of the funky attacking movement and patterns that they had under Wenger, and then that the defense would probably get a little bit better uh, in that it would be, like, press a little more and be a little less deep block. But that combination of stuff, while people were learning especially, would result in, in something that was worse to watch and not any different in performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of how it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I have a spoiler warning about the defense getting better, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not not quite what we were hoping for, but I think part of that might be like holding going out uh, was was not a positive. Like more Mustafi, I think, is never a positive at this point. No, that's fair. And, and by the way, for those wondering, uh, my voice is a little froggy. I have not been drinking uh, nonstop since the end of the Europa League final. I'm just not on a lot of sleep. Uh, but let's not have that distract from what I think is a really sort of interesting start to the summer and maybe concerning for some people. And I, I want to go back to something Raul said. Did you see the Raul and Vinay interview, the two-part interview that the club put out? I saw some of the the recaps of mm-hmm. it. Well, so I'll just mention something that I, I wanted to get your idea on whether you thought that this is how data should be used. Because I think there's a lot of people that are curious about how the club is using data. And obviously, uh, there's stats DNA uh, at Arsenal. That's, so, you know, at least you would think, providing the kind of data that that you generate and uh, consult with clubs about or, you know, something similar to that. And Raul was asked about, you know, using data and using analytics to to fuel the squad building and and, uh, player acquisition targeting, things like that. So 
he said that, you know, we go and we look at players and then we look at the data to help us avoid making mistakes. And that felt really backwards to me because to me, what that says is then you're only ever going to be looking at players that you know, know through relationships, have been referred to you, that you go watch, and then you're only using the data to verify what you've seen, where I would think that what the data allows you to do is find a subset of players that may be otherwise unknown to you or unknown to other clubs that have characteristics on a spreadsheet that are things you need. Then you go watch them and see if your eyes tell you what the data is telling you. Do you feel that maybe Arsenal is not using their data the way they could? And and how do you think about Raul's explanation about how he thinks it should be used? So I think I should start by saying that I have huge respect for the people at StatDNA. I think they have very talented people. They hire talented people. Their ideas about football seem to be consistently very strong. Uh, I've been at different conferences with them. I was lucky enough to present with Sarah Rudd at the Barcelona Analytics Conference alongside like some giants from basketball. Also, uh, Will Spearman from Liverpool was there. Uh, it felt very lucky to, to kind of be in that room. So I have huge respect for them. The question has been for basically since they were purchased, how are they used? How is their information used? And how is the club executing around it? And what you flagged up there is exactly my perspective on it in that like you should be using data to find players and then you more more correctly target your scouts and you do this as much as possible now now stat dna have their own data um they they might use other data companies as well but they certainly have an enriched data set even beyond whatever opta collect they definitely work on on the tracking data that everybody in the premier league has and they're way ahead of the curve like knowing who they've hired like they're really really bright people not unlike liverpool's group <clears throat> so then you ask the question why aren't they operating more like liverpool and that's where things become more uncertain. And behind the scenes, Arsenal have had turmoil for a while, whether it was the end of the Wenger era when, you know, he was kind of trying to scrabble for a last couple of seasons to, to have good um, good finishes. But they needed to, to get younger at that point and they never did. Or they needed to you know sell on Alexis Sanchez and potential, potentially Mesut Ozil, reinvest that money. That didn't happen either. Like there have been a lot of execution problems there. So I don't think that it's necessarily at the stat DNA level. But when when Raul says something like that, <clears throat> you have to be concerned that you know either he's intentionally being slightly misleading, which is fine, uh, you know that's that's normal, or if he actually believes that, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, and and the problem, do you think it's sort of just how I how I uh, positioned it in that there are going to be players that you just miss out on because other teams are using data to find those kinds of players, and you're using relationships. I mean, Raul is. I, I think sort of known for having close relationships with some of the super agents and things like that. I mean, do you worry that with Rao at the top now and Sven gone, that the club is going to rely more heavily on a network of agent relationships for player targeting? To go back to the earlier question, I have huge concerns with with exact like exactly that. So we we use data to find guys early. And that's really important because Arsenal can't afford guys when when everybody knows about them, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so when you find guys early, you know, you flag up like Steven Bergwijn two years ago and he's like 10 to 15, maybe 20 million. He's not 40 to 45 million, which is what the current price is. Uh, you have guys like Nabi Keita that you could have potentially gotten quite early on. A lot of guys from from League 2. Uh, I mean, it's all over the place. And back in the day, there was a bit of thing where Arson was like, well, that's a it's a crap league and not necessarily Arson, but the people underneath him who were in charge of the, the overall scouting and recruitment group, like they're very suspicious of, of worse leagues. But we've seen that a lot of these leagues produce pretty darn good players, especially the, the outliers. And that's what they need. 
Um, you know, I think one of the, the larger issues in Arsenal's squad building over the last five years is that they didn't buy those those like 21 and 22 year olds to complement everybody that was getting older. And whether that was a budget issue or whether it was that they were trying to win now and not as concerned about that, that is paying for the bill now. Like the, the bill is due and we're seeing an aging squad and a lot of guys that are not quite good enough anymore that actually were very good before. But now you have to, to retool and, you know, six, fifth and sixth is, a, is not great. And the stats on Arsenal suggest that, you know, that might have been even a little convenient this year. If they were continued to do that, then it's going to get worse. Yeah. And I mean, then the question becomes, do you have the right people in the organization who can course correct? And losing Sven, I think, is one of those things that some people don't care about. They say, you know, his reputation was inflated that you know one head scout is not going to make the difference at a club i think there are other people that worry that he was sort of the one person in the room that had a vision for how to course correct with with respect to how the squad had been built um i mean do you have an opinion on sven going and the cost that will have to arsenal as they try to build their way out of this uh imbalanced squad that they have so i've been around football for six years now and I can tell you that nobody really has any idea of what's happening inside of a club. Mm. So because of that, I'm, I'm very cautious about evaluating uh, Mislintat's role and what was going on there. Like, I just don't know. And we don't know, like, who the buck stops with and who's responsible for different things. I had heard that <clears throat> there were some frustrations about Mislintat taking credit for certain players that were really a very much a group effort and... Um, you know, some of those players that turned out to be quite good, like they were a group effort. I, I mean, in, for the most part, inside of a club, I, I've, I've worked inside of them for quite a while, at least in my mind anyway. <laughs> it, it felt like quite a while when we were working those 65-hour weeks. But you, you don't really necessarily point to one guy and say, oh, yeah, he found him or, or she found him if you're looking at like, you know, a more gender-balanced scouting role. Yeah. Um, so because of that, I'm not certain what is going on. But like the problem, the bigger problem is – what is the organizational structure? Who has vision? Who knows how to execute and apply all of these things that Arsenal have going on? Because like incorporating stat DNA is not traditional football. And if you have traditional football people that are, are basically running everything and they have uncertainty or a lack of trust in the value that the stats and, and the analytics bring, then you're not going to use them to their utmost. And we are seeing right now the Premier League is so competitive that clubs without the largest budgets need to be doing that in order to, you know, put the performances on the field and then have them move up the table. Yeah. It would be a shame. I mean, if, if ego got in the way of Sven succeeding at Arsenal, obviously, I mean, I will say that I think sometimes very talented people who are at the forefront of their uh, industry can have big egos. Um, we see that with the players. Certainly we've seen that with managers and it probably happens with executives and scouts and all of that. But I guess your point is is the correct one, which is that there is a whole team there, and they have to be, um, they have to feel included, and they have to feel that they share in the successes. I mean, as the star of this podcast, uh, I can certainly say that I'm thankful for the little people that I that I have on. Um, that that's a joke, but the, uh, the I, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to laugh or yeah, not, or if like no, you're going no, for like the deadpan thing. No, it's very <laughs> rare that anybody laughs at my jokes to begin with. Um, but but that one was bad enough that I felt it had to be flagged up. Um, All right, so fair enough. Okay, well. Then I guess the next thing is, you know, where where Arsenal has opportunity to try to rebuild the squad. And that means, you know, who do you sell? Who do you keep? Things like that. Now, one of the things that Arsenal did that made them fun is they bought two really good strikers. One of the things that Arsenal did that maybe wasn't super smart in terms of allocating resources is 
they bought, they bought two really two expensive really strikers. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm curious to get your take on that from two perspectives. One, as fun as it was, do you think it was bad squad building? And having done it, if we do have a big money offer for one of them, do we have to sell? Uh, you don't have to sell. <laughs> but it's the type of thing that you might want to do if you're trying to, to sort of capture this this model. Um so looking at, at Arsenal right now, there's a lot of 30s and a lot of 29s and 28s. So Lacazette 28, Aubameyang 29, Mustafa 27, Czech's gone, uh, Xhaka 26. Monreal's like going to be 34 next year, Kossiani 33, uh, Mkhitaryan 30, Socrates 30, Mesut Ozil 30. That is a lot of guys who are on the other side of peak age. Yeah. Um, and and like that's a that's a significant concern with this squad because as players age their performance will typically drop not always some take better care of themselves than others but you know the the body catches up to you it's very rare for a player to get out into their mid 30s and still be an elite player uh, and that's especially true for pacey roles roles that are usually attacking so. If China comes in for a Yang at eventually, essentially the price that you paid for him, you sell him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's. I mean, it makes me that... sad, but it's the right move, isn't it? <laughs> Here's the thing: like when you own a team, you have to kill your darlings. You know, you cannot hold on to guys well past their peak. Occasionally, you can, like if they're if you know that they're really good and they come from like your academy or something like that, or they're they're leaders. That's fine. But if a lot of your squad is like this and you always want to hold on to them, the fact of the matter is, football never really stands still. Whether you want it to or not, you can have the same squad year after year, and that squad will deteriorate in performance. Or it can get better if you've got a young squad that is then sort of improving, potentially improving together. So if you've got that heavy of a load of players that take a lot of minutes that are fairly old, you probably need to move a couple of them on. And if you notice, the best clubs do, right? Like Liverpool have moved on some of their plenty of their top guys and reinvested. If you trust your your team, your recruitment team to reinvest, that's the way to do it. Real Madrid are super reinvesting right now. They're reinvesting in guys that are they're sort of younger or peak age. Uh, they got rid of the some of their best ever players and they'll continue to do so because that's what you have to do in order to compete at the elite levels. Arsenal have a bit of eh, age that needs to be chopped off. Like we need to trim trim the tree so that the rest of it can grow. Well, I mean, there is there are some seedlings, so to speak, at the club that, that could grow. And, I mean, one of them is Matteo Ganduzzi. Uh, he, he was a polarizing figure this season, I think, because he's a 19-year-old who played 2,000-plus minutes in the Premier League and in a season where we weren't particularly dynamic. And so some people say he must be good. He's a 19-year-old who played 2,000-plus minutes in the Premier League. And some people say, I didn't really see what he did that was so special. I'm personally on the side of the fence where I think he has the potential to be a superstar. And that being able to contribute to the first team at that level at that age is a really good sign. But I'm open to the idea that it's not totally clear what position is best for him and what uh, characteristics of his game are his strongest suit and will will go on to be the, the core of what he does for Arsenal in the future. So I'm curious if you think that that was you know a, a home run acquisition and if you are as high on his his potential or maybe have some concerns. No, I really like it. I think that he is versatile. That's one of the things that makes him valuable. Having two guys in midfield that feel like they can cover ground in Torreira and Ganduzi, it also feels like a positive and slightly unusual for what Arsenal have had. And, you know, if you're a 19 year old and you're playing a lot of minutes in the Premier League and you don't look out of place, which is significant for him, there's a good chance you're going to get to be the point you're really good. 
and and so like that's really promising. Torreira also like exciting young player, uh, broad distribution, uh, gets stuck in. You know, is, is like has no fear. Really enjoyed that. Holding getting injured was, I think, you know, a big blow actually because he was starting to to look really stable, and and that was positive. You know, the the youth in in Arsenal that we saw this year was pretty good. Like I, I like a just fine. I don't know if like a going to be a long-term starter. Cause you probably want your wide forwards to, to score more often, but he's certainly a useful player either as a wide forward or an eight. And physically he seems great. Uh, Arsenal have probably their best youth crop that they've had in ages coming through, whether that's uh rice Nelson or Reese Nelson, um, in Europe and, uh, Ketia, um, yeah, yeah. Emma, I mean, Emma Smith Rowe, I think, is another one that people are pretty high on. Um, exactly, and and Willick like, started the, to play at the end of the season a little bit. Yeah. You have to be really careful about those guys, though, because if you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you get a lot of time, you wear down. And Arsenal fans should be more aware of this than anybody else, because we have seen a lot of super talented mm. teenagers come through the club that got burnt out from playing them too much in their early seasons when they're playing against full size men and their bodies are not quite ready for that. Well, I mean, so what? how do you balance this? I mean, if you're a Saka, if you're a Nelson, if you're a, a Willick, if you're an Enkedia, Smith-Rowe, and you're either being loaned out or you're playing you know, with the reserves, you're not getting first-team action, and you see Arsenal linked with a guy like Ryan Frazier, you know, a 25, 26-year-old type player who's very middle of the road, who had a good season but isn't, you know, a super high-end talent. You know, is that a signal to these academy players to start looking for their future elsewhere? Do you have to be concerned that, you know, look, it's one thing if you go after super elite talent. Um, but if you're going after a guy like Ryan Frazier, are you sending a bad signal to your academy players and risk pushing them away? I'm not sure. It depends on how ready the academy thinks they are. Uh, at Mitchell End, we had a great academy. We saw a number of really quite good players come through, despite the fact that the entirety of Denmark only has about 6 million people. Uh, they were developing you know, sort of mid-Champions League players at least once every other year. And we were able to trust the academy advice on, on how good they thought they were and how ready they thought they were. So if you trust your academy, they're probably able to say, Oh yeah, we think that this guy, you know, might need a loan here or there. And in fact, they they brought on a loan officer uh, to to manage all the loans and and to help manage that that transition to the first team. Uh, as a player, like, don't worry about the fucking rumors, though. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But oh oh don't yeah, worry no, about no, the rumors. no, we we do quite a bit of that on on the podcast. <laughs> I've been waiting to follow your lead, but yes, that's going to happen. <laughs> don't don't worry about the rumors because like almost all of them are nonsense, and you don't know what the the deal is. Are they actually looking at Ryan Frazier? Or is it because his agent is trying to drum up a move from somewhere and Arsenal seemed the most likely place because Arsenal's wide forwards weren't great this year? Yeah, well, I mean, that's to say the least. I mean, the, the, I think one of the biggest problems for Arsenal this season is the fact that we couldn't, we had to get both strikers on the pitch in part because we weren't getting any goal contribution from our wide forwards. And that meant that we were playing formations that I don't think really suited a lot of players, including, and maybe most notably, Mesut Ozil. Um, it really feels like the Ozil-Emery relationship is fractured beyond the point of recovery, but his wage makes it hard to move him. I mean, do you want to look into a crystal ball and tell me how that plays out so I can not cry myself to sleep at night? Uh, Arsenal are going to take a huge bath on his wages. They're going to have to pay for a good chunk of wherever he moves, and any any fee is going to be you know, possibly just payback for part of those wages. So it, it might look weird in a in a financial way or it might look obvious in a financial way. But my guess is that, you know, in order for him to move and he'll want to move, 
Like, it's just, you're going to have to swallow half of his wage packet at the minimum. Is that his agent calling you right now to say, don't, don't give anything away? No, no, no uh, it, it could though, you know. <laughs> okay. I, so, at any moment. <laughs> I know you're well connected. I, you know, I just thought maybe we're getting some I, classic ITK info here. I mean, uh, <laughs> It is it is one of the challenges that, you know, I mean, Arsenal have either overcommitted to aging stars or, you know, made mistakes with other key players uh, from a contract negotiation standpoint. One of those is Aaron Ramsey. He was really one of the players that seemed to, by the end of the season, well, before the injury, begin to thrive in Emery's system. And so losing him hurts doubly because you're not getting anything in return for him. And you're losing a very unique player in terms of his skill set. I mean, for you... That third midfield position, I mean, if you look at Genduzzi and Torreira as maybe a double pivot of the future, is that Aaron Ramsey role the one that is going to be really hard to replace and something that Arsenal needs to prioritize? Yeah, probably. Uh, they might feel the, that Mkhitaryan can cover that for another season. Yikes. Uh, I, well, I mean, he in the time that he played, he wasn't that bad. I don't know if people are, are realizing that or not, but like you know, six goals and four assists and however many minutes, like 1,700 minutes. You know what I think, Ted? I think the frustration I, – I think um, he played really well in the sort of February-March period when he came <clears> back from injury. <throat> but then after that, like 17-day layoff when we came back after that, he had, I think he had a really rough stretch at the end of the season that – that was problematic sure but as a statistics person like i'm typically going to try and work over a longer sample size like ramsey was I'm gonna amazing go more with right? knee-jerk reactions but yeah you do, you do you. okay <laughs> uh ramsey was amazing this year and ramsey has been very good a number of years the problem is is the thing that you said <laughs> that also goes hand in hand with ramsey being great before his injury right and and as a 28 year old and you know his injury history, and you you think that he's great, but he wants a huge wage packet that's guaranteed and five years more. I, you have to have concerns about that as a club. And and Ozil, you know, they felt like his his injury history had been better. This type of player probably ages better uh, over over the course of a season uh, or a course of his career. Like creative passers seem to have a longer lifespan because it's not just predicated on on driving runs and everything like that it's predicated on him having amazing vision um but you know that that one didn't work out great either so like they didn't they didn't want to make the second the same mistake twice effectively on on rambo and but like part of that is poor management to get to that point in the first place right and the swap deal for alexis sanchez versus mkhitaryan who is 30 now i you know you're like look if you had reinvested that, if you gotten anything for for Sanchez, say thirty million or the sixty million that was allegedly on offer, like that just makes everything better. But that's not what happened. So now you have to wait and you have to dig out. Um, I know there was another. So Ryan Fraser, I'm like pretty unexcited by. I don't think that he plays the style that Arsenal are looking for. I'm not even sure that it's like a real something that was really investigated that hard. I, it doesn't feel like that, but you know, the current arsenal, <laughs> who, if who it, knows what if the it old was, I mean, if it did come to fruition, would it give you real concerns about the process? Yes. Okay. I, I would, I would be concerned not only about the process, but like, what's the plan? And I think that that's my long-term concern with arsenal. Like, what's the plan? Why, why is this player here? What style are you building for? Like, do you seem think there's like, a desperation to get back into the Champions League and that maybe Arsenal's chasing one year plan after one year plan and just trying to put like like patches on the on the boat and try to float it, it into the Champions League? Sure, like that's the tail end of the New York Knicks when they are actually making the playoffs and so then they just kept you What know, happened after that, Ted? I, I assume they were great for decades after that, right? No? Yes, exactly. The the New York Knicks, as everyone knows, are regularly in the NBA finals. For those of you who do not follow the NBA, the New York Knicks are the laughing stock of the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Um, and as a former New Yorker uh, who didn't like the Knicks, it would have given me great pleasure to live there during that period, but I did not. Um, but I think it's dangerous, and that's yeah. kind of what I'm saying. Like, If you don't have a good plan on how to execute, 
given how competitive the Premier League is and how the other teams are getting smarter, like, it is dangerous. And the weird part is that Arsenal have smart people around the freaking club. It's just that, you know, are they figuring out how to use them correctly? Yeah, well, and I mean, it's certainly all evidence suggests maybe not. Um, I, I think there's another question, too, which is how... So so Unai Emery was very clearly and pointedly given the role of head coach. But that was under Ivan Gazidis's, um purview. And Raul seems to have a pretty trusting relationship with him based on what they say and some of the reporting. Now, that may not be true, but you know it does make you wonder how much Emery is driving the decision-making about the kind of players that he wants to bring in. So one of the rumors is Mounier. Um, and... Or Munir, I guess it sort of depends if you want to go with the French pronunciation there or not. Um, and no, it's Munier. There we go. Uh, but you know that that's another example that I think has people scratching their heads. And the reporting is saying that you know he's an Emery guy and Emery wants him because he's not convinced of Bellerin. Now I read those headlines and I say, is that just trying to to get clicks? Is that just trying to play on Arsenal fans' anxiety already? But that's another one that for me would be deeply concerning, both because of the the exciting possibility of, of having Hector Bellerin back sometime early next season. And, and the fact that it just seems a, a fairly unimpressive player in a position that's not a priority to put a, a significant chunk of the resources into. Is that another one where you'd say Arsenal really can't be letting Emery make the decision there? I don't hate the, the Mounier deal here. Really? I think some of the, some of the concern is about Hector and wanting him to have time to recover. And I think that that's totally fair because Hector probably is your starting fullback for reasonably reasonable time going forward. Uh, Mounier is tall, which helps out a little bit. Like Arsenal ha- have habitually built a little smaller in their style. Uh, so like having a tall fullback that you think is pretty competent is good. And he has been competent. Um, he's been he's been better in the company. He's been actually pretty good when he's played for PSG. And he was pretty good when he played for Belgium as well. Um, you know, the, the age is a little further up there. Uh, but like, I also think that this, this Arsenal budget to some extent feels like a myth. Like, I, I just don't feel like it's nearly as small as we're being told. Uh, maybe it's a, some negotiating <clears throat> factor that they're hoping that the rest of Europe doesn't hold them to ransom. Like they, they try with all the other big clubs. Mm. Um, so like, I, I don't feel as bad. I mean, Licksteiner got a thousand minutes last year and Licksteiner was a blank. So, so maybe you've got a guy that you actually think is pretty good at right back and can help out. And we know that Emery's system, assuming that he's around, is predicated on having some pretty good fullbacks, which you know he hasn't necessarily had. Uh, Maitland-Niles could potentially then shift and, and be more dynamic as a, as a midfielder again uh, or continue to play kind of the, the utility role. So I, I don't hate this deal. Um, well, that's encouraging. So there's one. Uh, because I, I have to admit, I had not heard that perspective, but that that's nice to hear. I mean, one of the things that people think will impact the budget, Ted, is just that there's the expectation that there's going to be tons of outgoings. Um, that Ozil might go, certainly. Ramsey is already going, uh, not for any money, but uh, Mustafi might be sold, that Jenkinson will go. Um, there's checks a lot. Checks off the wage package. Yeah, checks off the wage package. There's pack. a lot of wages available. And then, you know, there's rumors about uh, Shaka being sold and things like that. And I'm just Curious. I mean, there are a lot of players I'd be fine seeing going, but do you think that there is a limit of the number of players you can realistically sell and try to replace their minutes and their contribution in the following season without totally destabilizing a team? I'm, what are you destabilizing? The sixth best team in the Premier League? I, I mean, based on the table, we were the fifth best. Ted. I mean, but yes, yeah, no, I, I understand. Not based on but, metrics. I'm kidding. Um, well, no, it's. I mean, you got lucky that, that Manchester United had Jose Mourinho in in a third season. 
And and so suddenly, like, they're not even particularly competitive, despite the fact that they actually were most of the time. So, like, mm. there are a lot of teams that are in slight chaos. Like, Arsenal benefited from that. But assuming that the, they straighten things out a little bit, you know, I, whether they were the fifth or the sixth, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing, right? Right. Yeah. So, so to your point, um, there's not a whole lot to lose. I mean, you don't worry about Arsenal tumbling down the table, at least for any length of time. I mean, Wolves are getting better and they have money. Everton look like they might have money. Newcastle could be getting you know, a lot of money. I mean, do you have any concern that this is a kind of tenuous time for Arsenal where some bad decision-making could lead to the club finding themselves even more mid-table for a longer period? Well, I do have concerns about that, but we look at Liverpool who finished 7th and 8th for a long time and and then straightened things out and started to execute correctly, and now where are they? So it's not like it's going to bury them if they, they take on some pain. Um, that my, my concern is that you've got half of the squad that is, you know, 29 years old or older, and that you're not rebuilding it for the future. Well, yeah. All right. So then let's get to the the final sort of two topics that I, I think mm-hmm. you can't talk about Arsenal without talking about the owner and the coach. Um, you know, I mean, Stan Kroenke gets a lot of, I would say, justified anger from Arsenal fans. Um, but it's not always clear why people are angry with Stan Kroenke. I think, you know, for me personally, I, I just wish that he had a more clear, decisive vision for the club that was well-articulated and filtered down through the club. And when people weren't doing their job well, they were removed or decisions were made sooner and smarter. I mean, I think Arsene Wenger was allowed to stay probably longer than he needed to. Ivan Gazidis, I think, probably a similar situation there. Stan seems to have a a model where he runs his sporting uh, franchises by letting the people who are there just run the thing, and and he's kind of an absentee landlord to that extent. Other people think there's a much more nefarious element to it, um, that he's pulling money out, that he's financing stadiums in L.A. with it. I I think a lot of that is off base, but I'm curious whether you think that Stan does put a hard cap on Arsenal's ability to compete, um, or if you think that Arsenal can operate like FSG and that Stan doesn't prevent that in any material way. I don't really have any clarity or ability to answer it. I, I know I get frustrated from time to time. Um, and I wish that, you know, Arsenal didn't have this sort of hard cap and that they, they could just make up for mistakes and, and reinvest. But part of that is that they didn't buy the young players that uh, Liverpool were able to then sell on for premium. So mm. without Suarez, without Coutinho at, what, 14 or, or 20 million and, and 8 million respectively, that then got flipped around into, you know, something like 80 and 120 like Liverpool aren't where they are, right? So this is a it's got to be a long-term plan and you've got to be able to to do it right. I think we're just in that period where the end of Wenger has made everything unclear and and so because of that like and and also Gazidis leaving last year who clearly seemed to have a plan and then went on to Milan, it's just really complicated and I'm not surprised that that it's there. I don't know who to put the blame at and I know everybody's frustrated, but you know, you got to give a little credit to the fact that some of the teams that didn't used to be good got really good. Yeah, and I mean, I think the the counterpoint to the idea that Stan fully holds back Arsenal is like, I mean, he we did go buy Lacazette, we did go buy Aubameyang. I mean, I yeah. I'm not aware of any purchases or contracts that we weren't allowed to make because Stan said no to them. So maybe it is just about having smarter people in in the right positions to make better choices. So I, I mean, as we wrap up, look, Unai Emery had a pretty rough first season. I, I think, you know, he got lucky by overperforming the underlying metrics early in the season with the um, with the long streak of, of not losing games. But then it, the, the regression came and it kind of came back to bite him. I'm probably using regression wrong there and you're cringing, but hear me out. Um, 
So the question I have for you, Adunai, first and foremost, is just, did you enjoy the football he brought to Arsenal this season? You know, I think for all the the focus on results, rightfully so, and all the you know data and stats that we have to tell us whether Arsenal played well or didn't play well, it's still about watching them play and enjoying what you see. Did you enjoy the brand of football that he brought to Arsenal? No, it drove me nuts. <laughs> all right. How do you really feel? Um, so, I mean, how much how much should that matter when evaluating a coach? I mean, in your opinion, should that be a big part of what a coach is there to do? It matters a bit. And it's not just in my opinion. Like, we've done a lot of research on this stuff. And some of the things that Emery is doing are antithetical towards, like, you know, shifting the probabilities in your direction, which is what you need to do in order to compete on a lesser budget than the rest of the league. So, you know, basically setting up in the first half to be quite defensive and then, you know, making adjustments for the second half. Like, if you're good at it, great. But, like, why don't you set up in the first half to do it right and then make the adjustments anyway? Uh, you, why do you like basically concede the first half and then have to go after the game in the second half? Like that's just it's poor strategy. Um, some of the things that, that frustrate me is it feels like he makes too many adjustments to the opponent. One of the things that was always fun about Arsenal is they had a style. Like they they were like swashbuckling, and they would get cut apart on the on the counter because of slow center backs and, and defensive midfielders who occasionally got caught too far upfield. But like it was an enjoyable style to watch. And last year I challenged almost anybody to find an enjoyable style in what Arsenal did, uh, especially on the attacking side. So that's one of my frustrations. And we didn't bring in, like, you know, significant pressing. Uh, so that was like, uh, you know, th- we did press, uh, sorry, we, uh, Arsenal pressed <laughs> moderately well, but, like, not in the same way that, that the other teams uh, who are successful at it do. So another frustration. But, I mean, I know before we wrap up, we also have to make sure that, like, we talk about at least one or two of the young transfers that are a little more exciting, right? You can't, uh, okay, yeah, we got we to leave everybody with... with you got to have a little rainbow. Yeah. Okay. So the rainbow is is transfers. I mean, this this time of year, it, it gets really um, ridiculous. I don't know if you were on Twitter at all yesterday. I think the high point was um, someone pretending to be Shaka's cousin, saying that he was off to Inter, which within six hours had been debunked as the person not being Shaka's cousin. So that that's sort of the reliability of any of the rumors. But I mean, there are some names out there: Claude Maurice, Saliba, Chiquesi, and Kunku. Um, let's let's start with Claude Maurice. I mean, I know. Um, start with nothing and then figure out what's less than that. And that's what I know about Claude Maurice. So what should I know about Claude Maurice? So Claude Maurice is actually interesting. In our data, we look at Claude Maurice and one of the similar player profiles that show up is uh, Nicolas Pepe. Uh, he's well, younger like than Pepe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, it's good, right? So if you're looking at like the discount version of Pepe, who's young, that isn't going to, but you need to like respect what you're getting here too. He's not going to come in and light the league on fire. He's like probably for one to two years down the line, at which point you can be pretty excited by him. But that's where Arsenal are at right now. So like this is a guy that you're bringing in knowing that he's going to get some minutes, that he's going to develop, that he can be really excited as a ball mover and elite dribbler. He's playing in League, league Deux, but League Deux actually has a, quite a good talent level and he's a great dribbler at the age of 20 which again is pretty exciting so if you look at it from that perspective you know the Gunduzi uh purchase was, was similar to that as well can we take what looks like a fairly low risk gamble on a guy that not that many teams have looked at uh but that can really help us in a couple of years that's kind of how i look at him mm. i mean that that works i mean those those are the kinds of things we have to do is be getting the guy before clubs that are willing to spend a little more on on potential, find out about them or get interested in them. Um, and then hopefully they turn into someone like a Sterling that you can sell for 50 or 60 million pounds. But before we get on to another name, that's another thing. I mean, do you think that the focus on, hey, let's buy a guy so we can sell him for big money down the road 
is kind of a soulless way to look at football. I mean, one of the things I find myself doing all of a sudden is thinking, oh, we should get that guy. He could be worth a lot of money in a few seasons. I mean, how do you balance the idea of like wanting to watch fun, good players at your club, but also recognizing that your club has to create asset value for lack of a more uh, enjoyable way to put it? Oh, this is this is the entire Brentford fan experience, and and I watched that that club go through and that fan base go through this whole phase, where they they found it very frustrating in the early days. Oh, I cannot believe we're selling our best players on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But from a club perspective, like you need to understand the value of your players. You need to understand the the replacements that you can potentially get and what they might cost. And when somebody comes in and they they give you good value for those players like you sell and and you then reinvest that money to to rebuild it and continue on a lot of people have played fantasy or um football manager Mm -hmm. and it's the same sort of thing that you're going to do there and that is how it operates um but the other thing that you need to do is put out the best product on the field as often as you can and and that is a balancing act that is quite challenging but it's possible to do. And and so I, that's kind of how I look at it. I enjoy players as they come through. And often I will follow those players as they as they leave, uh, somewhat controversially. Uh, I, I actually appreciated Van Persie going to win titles. I appreciated Sesk winning titles, despite the fact that it was with the blue team. You've just lost everybody. <laughs> I know, but like I like those players and I like watching them. And yeah. modern football means that, you know, it's it's a little more than just the, the guys that are wearing the red shirt right now. Yeah, the problem is that we have to be hashtag against modern football. Um, so, yeah, well, and I mean, you, you look at a club like Dortmund, right? I'm sure there wasn't a Dortmund fan that wanted Dembele to leave the club. He was a fun, exciting player to watch. But, you know, you also have to be impressed at turning a negligible investment into $100 million that you can use to rebuild a really exciting, fun squad again. They immediately got competitive. In yeah. fact, they, they bought one or two of the center backs that I was hoping that Arsenal would buy last oh, year. Of course they did. Um, so an, another guy, Saliba, uh, this seems like a, a pretty reliable link. Again, um, let me tell you everything I know about him. There you go. Uh, any Anything we should look forward to with him? Can you give me a little more more detail? We're looking at William Saliba? Yes. Uh, I believe he is a defender. Um, Center back at Saint-Étienne. Yes, yes Saint-Étienne. That's the one. Yes. Very promising, 18 years old, exactly the type of buy that I would make. Um, there was a, another kid at Saint-Étienne uh, that was a right back that was bought by Monaco last year. We call him RPG. I think it's Ronel <laughs> Pierre-Gabriel. Uh, and he's built like an RPG. He looked like a, a linebacker out there running as a as a right back at 18. Uh, I think that mine's bought him this year. But yes, I like both of these players. And this is exactly the place that I would probably pick up guys. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to come in as the finished product. And if you expect that, you're going to be deeply disappointed as as a club. You have to you have to appreciate the young kids need time to develop. And, and that's what you got now. I think he's been touted as a possible Koscielny type replacement, but that could just be as easy as he's coming from France, so he's replacing Koscielny. I don't know if there's <laughs> if there's anything else to that. Um, it looks like we have bought or are buying uh, Gabriel Martinelli from Brazil. I mean, again, the beautiful thing about doing a podcast uh, and not knowing anything about any of the topics you're talking about is that you can rely on your talented and, and intelligent guests. So uh, any idea about Martinelli? In this case, I am exactly the same as with awesome. you. Well, I, we will, I'm neither talented nor intelligent. We will, well, I, I, I refute that, but we will live the experience together. Um, how about Chiquese? This is a guy that um, you know, sort of popped up on the radar in January as Arsenal being interested in him. And uh, you know, I looked at sort of the stats. I know Scott, who, who, who is a regular on the podcast, he, does, he likes to put out some of those spider charts that you guys sort of popularize, the, the radars. And uh, he's got an interesting one. He's intriguing. Uh, some 
fairly poor shot locations. He likes to, he's got a little bit of suso about him and that he likes to cut in, but Ooh, uh, still, like <laughs> well, yeah, not, not quite as much success, but um, yeah, decent scoring basically on his expected goals averages. Uh, dribbles are quite good, but you would hope that those dribbles would turn into uh, potential shots for his teammates. And it doesn't seem like that's happening as often as you might want. Only 20 years old at Villarreal in one of the, the sort of top two, top three leagues in the world. I, I don't think it's bad. It, at that point, it just really comes down to price and what you're hoping for. Um, yeah, I think Arsenal don't want to end up with more, like, are all of their wide forwards that can only create for their teammates. They want some guys who can score, and maybe that's what they're seeing. I'm not sure. It feels like, given the names that have been thrown out, if they're true, then Arsenal are going to be you know, rebuilding this year. Uh, it feels like they're they're gonna we're gonna have some youth that we need to get comfortable with, whether that's youth from the academy or youth from from outside. And mm. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Is a is a bit of just admitting the reality of the situation and and trying to rebuild for one, two, three years down the line. Yeah, and then we go get Frazier and Alberto Moreno on a free, and suddenly it doesn't look like we're doing that anymore. <laughs> um, how about a last name in Kunku? Uh, again, a guy we were linked with in January. I like him. Uh, I think he's I think he's interesting, but. You know, can he provide what's missing in that area? Is he a PSG player? Yes. I can't say anything. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, Mounier, I can, but I need to be really careful. No, no, no. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, No, that's that's smart. That's good. That that leaves everybody wanting more. There's an air of mystery about it. I love it. Um, So then let's just look into the future and get a prediction. I mean, do you think that next season is going to be more pain, more disappointment, or are you optimistic about Arsenal being able to get back in the top four? I'm not optimistic. I think it's possible that they can get into the top four, but I think there's a lot of work to be done this summer that needs to lead them there. And I really hope that that this first season of Emery was like the worst version and we're going to get a better one because otherwise I think that, you know, we'll struggle like we did this year and a lot of Sometimes similar ways, but possibly different ones. I do hope Ozil ends somewhere that he's happy because you know I I have enjoyed watching that player in particular, and you know despite the the often controversies or the way that people evaluate him, I think that he's he's actually been quite a joy to watch for most of his time at Arsenal. Yeah, let me ask you a question about that though. Out of curiosity, where could you wind up making three hundred and fifty thousand a week where you would be unhappy? I'm just curious to get your list of places that encompass that. Um, that's a that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> on the flip side, like if you have a coach that tells you to man mark Jorginho for an entire final when that's not really your skill set, maybe you get a little irritated. Shots fired. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, I, and I agree with that. By the way, so all right. Well, look, I I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I really enjoy hearing through your your philosophy on football. It's kind of ironic as we're doing this uh, interview. The uh, my phone, which is sitting here with some notes on it, popped up and let me know that the latest Stats Bomb podcast is out. So, you know, go listen to that and hopefully listen to this also. Uh, Ted's on Twitter at Mixed Knuts, K-N-U-T-S, Mixed Nuts, right? That's correct. That's and correct. thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to people. Uh, you can send the hate mail to uh, James at StatsBomb.com. Yeah. He deals with all that. I don't think there would have been any before you went on with the, I liked watching Van Persie win titles. <laughs> can't, can't, Look, can't, can't get your back there. Um, I, I don't necessarily even like Van Persie that much, but God, he was a glorious player. And that left foot. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was fun to watch until he... Fucked off to be united. Anyway, all right. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with Clive after this. Stay with us. Bye. All right. We're 
come back. Um, I think that was a really interesting conversation. I'm glad we got to do it. I want to talk to Clive now and get a perspective on, you know, where we are as a club, where the squad is going, how to fix it, and how to look back on this season um, with a little bit of distance, hopefully, now, and and maybe a little bit of perspective. And Clive is certainly one for uh, offering perspective. So Clive's on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. So look, I made the point on social media a few days ago that it seemed to me in the wake of the Champions League final, when the season was really finally fully over and the reality of everything had sunk in, that the tide started to feel like it was turning much more strongly against the manager. Um, Now look, I want to caveat the hell out of that by saying social media isn't the real world, that that doesn't mean that's what everyone's thinking, that my feed may... Uh, reflect a certain bias. I don't think so because these are people I've been following for years and years and years. And, you know, they're they're people that I don't think of as being uh, hysterical, myself excluded, but I don't follow myself. Obviously, I block myself. So, you know, I'm, I sort of want to get your take on, first and foremost, the mood and whether you feel it's, it's starting to shift a little bit and why you think that might be. Uh, I think it's how people process disappointment. Uh, I was having a chat with my son the other day and he's 17. And he was talking to me about, you know, Dad, you were lucky you were there. You know, you were there in 89. You was on the streets for two, three days. You know, you were there. I was there in 87 when we won the Littlewoods Cup. You know, I, I saw the cup finals. I was, I was there we beat Everton. I saw the 93 cup finals. I was in Copenhagen. I was there when Naeem scored from the halfway line. I was there in Paris. I've seen a lot of the big occasions. And so I have my own story, my own journey, but I've seen the highs. Um, you know, I've been you, on the You better parades. pray your iCloud doesn't get hacked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've seen the highs, right? So I, I have my journey. And I sometimes think about my own son who's 17. I think about his journey and I think, okay, what about the younger generation? What have they seen? They've seen a few FA Cups, which were great. But they've also seen a level of discourse and division and by which I think the club's been defined by. Um, it's been defined by... The, the Wenger period potentially lasts for five to seven, eight years, where we have been maybe divided about him. And I think that's conditioned our behaviours and reactions to disappointment. I think it's conditioned us to to look at the person in charge. And I think I can't blame people for that. You can never blame people for how they feel. I think the game is all about how you feel, how the game makes you feel and how you feel when you engage with it how, and however you engage with it. You know, and we're part of that edit for some for some people. We are part of that engagement, mm. right? and um, and I think people do feel a level of disappointment, and they're focusing on the major, and that's that's their prerogative. And um, and the difference between fans when when I was you know bowling around Copenhagen with my twenty four Cantastella under my arm, <laughs> the difference between fans then and fans now is that we can look at um, data, look at information, look at analytics, we can see the underlying numbers, we can see our XG goals against, goals for, our shot creation, chance creation, everything, shot position, we can see it all. So we can flood ourselves with information and we can call ourselves informed. And then we can say, well, that's enough for me now to point the finger at this, that or the other. Right? And, and I think that's, again, that's part of the new football journey. And, you know, what I try to do is take a step back further and say, okay, how do I absorb this information? How do I understand it? How do I 
articulate it to help others understand it and then how are we going to move forward to fix it and that's where my brain has already gone in the last few days because the disappointment is starting to wear and Spurs losing at the weekend obviously make that a lot easier to bear otherwise it would be a traumatic time for everybody but I am starting to think forward and I understand why people are where they are with a manager that basically we don't love Right? And I think part of our conditioned behavior is there was a period when all of us loved our previous manager, every one of us. And some of us fell out of love with him, some of us didn't. But I'm not sure there's hardly anybody that's in love with this guy. We understand what that's he's... That's a great point, yeah. So Some of us are trying to understand what he's trying to do. Some of us are looking at him with the context of the club. But I don't think people love him and maybe you know people don't quite hate him yet but the app the uh, emotion which is the one you need to be afraid of is the one that leads to apathy i think in the end apathy killed the previous our previous manager uh when people stop caring that's a that's a problem if people reach a point where they don't see a connection with this new manager and they start to get apathetic that could be a problem going forward. Yeah, you know what? Look, full stadiums filled with banners wanting the manager out is better than empty stadiums, right? So, yeah, like, exactly. Especially exactly. if you're the owner. Um, and I think it is a fair point. Look, I've been ready. I had been ready for Arsene Wenger to go for quite a few years. And I think long before the Leicester title season, I thought it would have been best if he had gone. And I, I wish he had gone after the Hull FA Cup final. I thought that would have been a perfect time. Um, yeah. But having said that, look, the part about him is that he had a decade of success at Arsenal that made him an Arsenal legend. So, you know, no matter how frustratingly bad he was performing, you were still directing your ire at an Arsenal legend, you know, at a man who had given us yeah. some of the highest highs. And he was debonair and he was philosophical. And some of people came to hate that about him. For me, while there were a lot of things about his management style and coaching style, I came to dislike. I, I mean, his his way as a, as a man, as a, as a person was something that, that I always felt an affection for, even at the depths of my concern about him leading us in the wrong direction. Emery, because it's a second language, because he doesn't sort of look and act and dress and, you know, philosophize in the same way, I don't and doesn't have a decade of success at the club behind him, which is certainly the more important factor, I think you're yeah. right. I think he's hard to hold close and love. And so when you love someone, I think you can you find reserves of patience with them because they open their mouth and speak and beautiful words come out and you're mesmerized. It's like a you know, it's like one of those toxic relationships where there's codependence. We were codependent on Arson for for a while. Um yeah. arguing about him was the fiber of the club for a decade. But let me ask you this. I mean, I think Arson Wenger really lost the fans not when the results turned against him so much, but honestly, when the football became pretty dour. I think Arson's football stopped being beautiful football in his final few seasons. And this whole myth of, you know, well, we may not be winning, but we play some of the nicest football in the country. Like, that had stopped being true. So how important is it, do you think, for Emery, since I think it is pretty clear he's getting another season, for Emery to find a style and approach that isn't just winning football, because maybe this team isn't ready to be a winning team, but that is football that people can you know, their imaginations can be taken by it. I mean, do you feel that his pragmatism, which was something we were crying out for, ironically, has kind of undermined people's ability to to find their affection for him? 
I, I think we in Wenger's style was very much an improv style and we were looking for a bit more structure and structures can sometimes be construed as pragmatism right so we wanted more structure in defense we wanted more structure in attack we didn't want our team to be Alexis dependent give it to Alexis let's see what happens well, we didn't want that right? um, we thought because the days we didn't play well guess what we, we didn't play well we we wanted more than that we wanted more layers we wanted more layers all over the club we didn't want to have a single point of failure at the management layer and we didn't want one player to dominate the team so greatly on the pitch um but we have grown used to uh, a style that maybe there wasn't one but it was all built on the talent that we had so the imperfections in the balance of the team we sort of took them for a period because we kept winning cups but also when we were hot we were beautifully hot right so but we wanted preparation we wanted coaching we wanted structure we wanted layers we wanted organizational change well i did anyway right so and guess what? i got all of that i think this is great this is just what i've been moaning about for three four years now let's rebuild the squad well we didn't quite do that we didn't quite commit to that but I'm ready to judge, right? We're ready to judge. The CEO walks away. Okay, that's not great. The head of recruitment walks away. They just brought in maybe three or four decent players. That's not great. So we haven't quite turned the page. We haven't turned the page organisationally. And because we haven't quite committed funds and to the team at the right level, we haven't really given us a basis for a style. Because I feel, this is why I will defend the manager, and, I've, and I've, I feel he's made a lot of changes to cover weaknesses. And I think he's almost gone away from his strategy that everyone told me is a 4-2-3-1 guy when he walked through the door, to, okay, I've got this group of players. I need certain ones on the pitch. So I've got to move away from what I would like to do. I've got to protect some people. I've got to hide some people. I've got to develop people who are not ready to play right back, for example, into a right wing back situation. I can't play another player at left wing back. I can't leave two centre halves on their own because they're going to get run. I can't. Sometimes I've got to pack midfield, make keep my wing backs tucked in because my I don't trust the legs of my centre midfielders. But I've got to have my two fours on the pitch because that's my then my get out of jail card. My number tens can change. Hopefully they'll turn around. Ramsey's coming, done really, really well. And then I sometimes think Ramsey's done really, really well based in the context by which we look at the other players who don't show the right level of personality to play for the club. And all of this he's trying to manage to get us back to the promised land of the top four Champions League positions. And I think it's very difficult for him to reach the expectations of people like yourself, Elliot, that want to see a style. And, and by the way, I'm not adverse to seeing a style, but I understand why I didn't see one this season. Mm. Let me ask you this. How much do you think the rumors that are coming out now are sort of being designed to G up frustration towards the manager? Because one thing that I think is weird, I'm seeing a lot of rumors suddenly, things like, Amici set to leave after Europa League snub, right? That yeah, like yeah, he yeah. didn't make it on the bench and it turns out we actually had to name th three goalkeepers or whatever. That Like there's a way for rule for it. Or, you know, Mounier, Mounier is a target. Uh, Emery not convinced with Bellerin, despite the fact he started him, you know, every freaking game when he was fit. Like, so, yes, wait, I mean, well, you'll so, see so, other so, stuff like, you'll see mm -hmm. stuff like Spurs target chooses Spurs. Spurs, Arsenal target chooses Spurs. 
over Arsenal due to Arsenal's failings, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? That's coming around the corner soon. Wait for that to happen. When a Spurs target, so a target we're looking for goes to Spurs, it's going to be uproar. You wait for that one. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I mean, <laughs> look, I mean, the good news is Spurs don't actually buy players, so, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, but I mean, so, right, well, so let's get into that then. I mean, obviously, look, the one thing that I think is fair, I think you can feel that Emery did a mediocre job this season, that there were targets set for him that he didn't hit, fine, but that there were also things he could have done that maybe he missed the opportunity to do while still saying, okay, he's got another season He's definitely getting it, and I'm open to him getting it right this season. So then yeah. let's look forward a little bit. I want to talk transfer rumors momentarily, but before we do that, I mean, for you, I mean, look, you you believe in this man's ability to get the job done. You've spoken about him as a cleaner, and I think that resonated with certain people. But for this next season, um, how important is it, do you think, for him to start to instill a core philosophy and does you know does he need certain players in certain positions for that to happen? What what does he have to do this summer to to make next season a little less murky on the pitch for for the supporters and for the for the players? I think um, you know last year we were going through through a part of the change cycle, and I was more confident when I saw the team behind the team, and then that team dissipated. I think we're moving into a period of. The no excuse period for for Emery. Uh, I think there will be no debate who bought the players. There will be no debate that they're the players that he has had a party to. You know, you could say, given the way transfers work, that some of the players that were picked last year were not. He may not have had a massive involvement in. Um, and I think this year that we can that's there's no debate. He would have had an involvement in the players that come in that have been targeted. So that's gonna be very interesting. And then if you if you're gonna be targeting players and they are players that you want, then there is no excuse for you not to implement your style on those players. And I think once I once I see that, I think, okay, well you've got to now do what you are, be what you are, which is a coach for football matches and to get results. Um, I, I was never convinced by people telling me that Emery had a particular style. I just think he's a competitive football coach. And it's quite interesting that, you know, Wenger had a rotational style, players moving in and out of spaces on the pitch, very flair-based players. Uh, he went from a physical team when in his early phases to a much more number 10 team moving the ball sharp combinations with talented forwards to put the ball in the net and then when some of that talent waned I think he made some defensive selections that made us weaker and, and didn't allow him time his offensive talent time to deliver I think Emery if he wants to do anything he needs to absolutely give himself a platform by which to play and I don't think he, we're ever going to see him or anybody succeed until we produ produce a defensive team structurally that allows us to see a style develop. And you can't build anything on on Sandelli. It just won't. It just won't work. It'll just work for a period of time that it will fall over. Do you think that the structure at the club can support any manager, but this manager, to? 
to to take us where we need to go. I mean, so he, here's the thing. We we are on the precipice right now. We have a lot of players that have to be sold. We probably have a lot of players that have to be bought. We have a manager who, whatever your opinion of him, you know, seems to very clearly not be able to get where we need to go with the group he's got now. How likely is it that Raul and Vinay and, you know, Edu's not even here yet and, you know, I, I'm going to butcher the name. Kajigugu? Yeah, Frank. Yeah, that guy. Um, uh, you know, is our scout now. Like, do you think that any coach, let alone Unai Emery, can be successful right now with the way the structure is at the club? Do you think he has the people in place to support the project to get it done? I think he did when he arrived, funny enough, and that disappeared. Uh, that's the perception I had. Uh, we had we had three or four people hired him, and two of those people immediately disappeared. You know, within six months. So that's that's a problem. That is a problem. When you have three people hire you, and two of them are not there anymore. Right. So that is destabilizing. And I think I don't think any coach could have really succeeded massively last season, apart from the stellar ones that we we all know, because we all perceive they they would be better. And um, but I, I do think the most important thing is to develop an environment where someone can succeed. That is the most important thing. You've got to create a no-excuse environment. You can't have excuses for players, for coaches, for anybody in the club. You've got to create something where you come in and this is what you do and there's no excuses for you not to do it. Once you take people's legs away, then there's always an excuse for failure and you can't have that. I, I do feel strongly whether you support the manager or not, as a club, I don't think we've treated our managers very well historically and our superstar people very well. I think we overburdened managers. I think we overburdened superstar players. We ask them to do things that they can't sustain. We overplay certain players. We don't manage people's careers correctly. We don't manage people's contracts correctly. We overpay as well as overplay. And I think our identity has been defined by a multiple of bad decisions. And this is what we have to change. And we've only got to look at Liverpool. I know everyone's looking at Liverpool. But their decision-making from top to bottom in their club over the last four to five years has been outstanding. And it's those decisions by key people in the club that have allowed them to have a team on the pitch which mirrors the identity of the manager. And the manager, let's talk about him, for example. He came in, talk about his heavy metal football, and he did that for two, three years, and he tripped up. He lost finals, he tripped up, he lost major games. He kept running around in an unstructured way, and he got picked off on, on key moments. But what did he do? He identified his problems. He added three players in Fabinho, Van Dijk, and Allison. He solidified the team. And what he actually did, Elliot, was he allowed the team to play at a lower gear. He allowed them to be able to play calm because I've given you serenity at the back. You've got no goalkeeper thrown in the Champions League final any longer. You've got structure in your centre midfield. If people want to get physical with us, we can run with them. We can outrun anybody. But we can play a bit too. We can carry a bit too. We can arrive in the box like when Aldum does also. And if teams sit in and they don't give us the spaces, we can bring on Divock Origi, who's six foot ten, and he can win it in the air for us in critical moments and score goals physically. They're able to fix problems. And now look at Arsenal's team, right? We've got our key defender 
in Koscielny, who's aged, only came back after a seven-month injury. If you pick on him and you overrun him or you go on the other side, you look at Socrates, you're not sure what you're going to get from him. If you want to go down the fullback side, well, you can go down Monreal's side. Monreal got picked on by Lukaku about five years ago playing for Everton, yet he's still in our team, right? Straight away, that's a weakness. We've covered it up by playing him as a left centre-half, when really we should be looking at ourselves then and saying, you know what? Someone's picked on his weakness, his speed, his power, lack of power in wide areas. We need to develop past that, but we haven't. We've still got him here, and we're still trying to manage that situation. And if you do that, you can see the exact same amount of goals we did previous season. That's exactly what we've done this season. On the right-hand side, we know Bellerin, who is a, who is a, is a very good player. He's getting better every minute he's out. Maitland Niles is his backup. We know he's he's more of a midfielder stroke winger, but we've played him there consistently for tens of games. We haven't got what we need. Right? We haven't got what we need to develop any form of platform or style from that position. That's a key problem for us. Key problem to be able to manage game states and manage different problems that teams present us before we even get into midfield our ability to cover the ground and before we even talk about our ability to connect to our top two which i'm sure all the stats show we've, we've decreased in that area so we have things to fix but there are there is a way forward if you know there is and it's not as difficult as it has looked and i've been i've been thinking a bit about this it's not as difficult you just got to remember what a good team looks like remember how you feel emotionally when you're watching and what's not there and then that should transmit itself into 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 transfers. Transfers. Hmm. You want to talk about those? Yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody listening would mind. I I know that that gets the uh, the clicks according to the kids. That's what they tell me. So, well, let, let's talk about that a little bit then. Um, you know, there is there's a huge debate. I mean, the thing that has changed so much. It's so interesting. You know, having been on social media for for a long time talking about Arsenal and writing a blog and doing a podcast now and you know interacting mm-hmm. with with supporters and obviously I don't get to the stadium with the frequency you do so you know I, I don't I don't have that perspective but the way we think about squad building even has changed so much um yeah. you know for years we were bitching with Arsenal oh, you know project youth just wants to play the kids go out and you know spend some fucking money and splash the cash and now the irony is it's Oh God! Don't buy another twenty-eight-year-old. Go buy some kids. Play the kids. We got to get young. We got to. We got to build asset value. Like, how shocking is it to see the change and the way people now appreciate? And maybe Liverpool have informed this to some extent too. The way you need to build a squad and the way selling is important to be able to buy, and and that your access to the market depends on you know making smarter moves and not just spending money. I mean, do you feel that? Perhaps the things we were doing seven, eight, ten years ago were underappreciated at the time, in part because we had just come off having you know, the greatest accumulation of talent on an English football pitch of all time, but like also because we didn't have access to the data and a, a way of thinking about squad building. Are, are you really kind of amazed to see the way that the narrative has changed and the way people now look at our squad and really are clamoring for us to get younger, buy younger, sell the older players and, and turn over the squad? I think it's really. It's. I think if I never underestimate how informed the fan is. Right. I think it's incredible. I. I, I downloaded a report from KPMG the other week about the top Europe's elite clubs, and I think in the top ten clubs we've got like the highest wage bill, but our squad value is quite 
low. Not say the highest wage bill, but the the ratio between the two is is not the best. Mm. Right, our squad value is not the highest, but our wage bill for that squad value is 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 very high. Right, so so that tells you that could you know from a business perspective and a spreadsheet perspective that could say well actually what are Arsenal going to do? They're going to increase their squad value. How do they do that? They got to buy younger and speculate, build talent. And then that squad value will will rise significantly. You've seen what could happen with a, a Guendouzi, for example. We bought him for seven million. He's not seven million today. He's he was I think he's number two for the most highest talent under twenty year olds in in the whole of Europe, behind Jaden Sancho. So that's not Arsenal fans talking. That's the football world talking. So that tells you what you can do if you recruit smartly, right? So do we trust that to continue? I, I'm not so sure. So some people look at it that way. For me, Elliot, being a football man, I look at it from a on-the-pitch perspective. What do we need to do to fix what we're seeing? Right? And I, I look at it from a football, and I look at it and say, okay, we need the ability to play a back four and play a high line. That's very important for this team. It's very important to compress the space. We can't do that today. We're playing back threes to fix problems and weaknesses, and we're and we're making the pitch look too big for too long, too many periods in the game because our defenders are aged, and they're looking after themselves. We need the ability to have speed and intensity in the midfield and sustain that by making having five or six players that can do it, not just two or three. Right, so that's really important. We have to have the ability to protect the exterior of our team, on the sides at fullbacks and at the back in our in our defence. It has to be something that people can't decide they want to bully us physically or they want to take us for runs. If we can stop that, again, we can dictate and control the play more and control the story of the game. And lastly, I think we need to have the ability to play against a deep block. We we haven't got that today. If teams give us the size, give us, say, we're going to hold the box you know, your mate Drew, we used to have that player bring him on as a plan B. We haven't got that player now. So when we buy a forward, there may be a couple of things we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at the ability to carry or the ability to have size in the box. And I think it's one angle that I think we're really missing. And I know that a lot of the numbers about Arsenal, some of them are mid-table numbers, but we made to execute on our goals. And so that gives us the points maybe above what we should already have. But what Arsenal are lacking for me is something very, very simple. They lack a player that says, give it to me. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, that, that is for sure. Alexis, you know, look, he was, he was washed, but that's what we lost when we lost him. Give it to me. We've always had that. Vieira, give it to me. Henri, give it to me. You know, we've said Fabregas, give it to me. Just give it to me. Right, and... And, and, and Mesedozo's not that player, right? I mean, for, for for better or worse, whatever you say about him, he's never been that player, has he? he he's he's a player that would look, look good alongside all of those players. Yeah. But he hasn't got that alpha personality. Right? He hasn't got it. Yeah, he's got the alpha number on his shirt. He's got the alpha wage. And so he gets misunderstood. And we all expect him to do everything, but it's not him. There are players out there that say, Ryan Percy, give it to me. Mm. This is what we've grown up with. We've grown up with an improv manager with give it to me players. Is part of the problem a, there? I mean, is is the fact that like our star striker, and this is with all due respect to Lacazette, our you know our star striker is Aubameyang, and he's a he's a last touch of the ball guy. He's he's an Inzaghi. He's a, a Van Nistelrooy. Right? He's not. He's a guy who wants to be on the end of moves. When when your star yep. player is a guy who doesn't want to be involved in build up, you you can run into that problem. Yeah, you, you can. So he's our star player on outputs. 
right? So, you, to, to, again, he suits the modern fan. You can look at the statistics. Touches, chance conversion, big chances taken, big chances missed. Wow, we can see it all. What a great player. But you know what? The demographics of football, a football team, when we got disconnected in that cup final, there was nobody out there saying, give it to me. Well, nobody. the good news is we're going to be able to give it to Ryan Frazier, who can pass it to Alberto Moreno and then fire it into, <laughs> I don't know, Eddie and Ketty. Let, let, let's talk about some of these ridiculous targets. I mean, the latest one breaking right now is we're going to go for Alberto Moreno on a free. The Nunai Emery wants him. Uh, we're going to get Munier apparently for $20 million on the right side. We are going to uh, apparently stay squarely in the in the uh, era of the mediocre wingback as the fulcrum of our attack. I kid, I kid. But, like, are these rumors designed to, to get us angry, or, or, or are we really going for these players? What do you think of the idea of Moreno on a free and Mounier for $20 million? Uh, I, I, I almost don't, don't want to comment. I think what they're saying is, and it seems to be a little bit of a... Uh, a, a press trick, per se, is that Emery is Emery's one criticism. Sorry, he's got many criticisms, but one mm-hmm. criticism that's maybe travelled with him from PSG is uh, his ability to manage stars in the dressing room. So by by writing those headlines, you're saying to everybody who doubts him, he's getting people in the dressing room that he can trust. So he's going to bring in. So how about we link him to all of his old players that potentially could be on the move? Right, so Benega, Mounier, Moreno, you know, so that's what we get. You know, Dennis Suarez actually came into fruition. So that's what we're going to get. And this brings a level of, you know, this is why I was so desperate for us to win the Europa League, Elliot, because it wasn't because not just for the prize, but because I knew this was coming. I knew the trust was very te- tenuous, shall we say. Yeah. And now it's, go- now it's gone the other way. So now we're now, we've lost, we've lost, perspective we've lost we've lost it now we've we're thinking okay this is how i feel i don't like how i feel i don't like this i don't need to see this moreno thing i don't need that stuff i I want something else i want more and you're now then looking within the club fabric we don't trust that neither do we we don't we don't know what raul's going to do we don't know what vinay's going to do we certainly don't know what the owner's going to do um and we haven't even got a technical director in place yet and we haven't got a head of recruitment in place yet. So it's not quite there. How can I ask anybody to trust what's, what's upcoming? I can only then take my eyes away from that because it's too depressing and look on the football pitch and say, if I was him, how I would do it and what I would try to fix. And I would definitely try to bring a level of athleticism. And I know that sounds obvious, but it's, it's, it's important. The reason why I say it, look around you, look at your competitive landscape, you know, Man United, Liverpool, Spurs, Man City, sharp, Chelsea, sharp, sprinting teams. Chelsea, not so much. They're not in a better place than us. Spurs, Spurs' best team was a couple of years ago. It's not now, and they're going to reach some problems. They got 18 more points two years ago. They're not in a great place, right? So don't think they are. Their average age is about 0.3 difference in their squad the balance of that squad might be slightly better because they haven't got the aged players we have and we've got 
we got we're a bit old and we're a bit young but the average age is still not great and the contractual situation is not where it used to be Manchester United are not in the best position Chelsea we don't know what, even they're going to have a manager let alone being a transfer ban so there is an opportunity there but these teams are outrunning us they're out physicaling us they're out intensing us we have to fix it and we have to have the ability to offer another problem outside of our front two I re- it's a key thing and what we're relying on in our attacking midfield spaces is a lot of inconsistency very little goal scoring not much chance creation and we need something else in that area and to change how people def- defend against us and how they plan for us and it's very important we focus on that and in the end Ed, it's a game we spoke about it before the pod is how you feel about football and I, I really want to see players that when they receive the ball, I actually get excited. Mm. I'm not sure what what they're going to do. It's really that basic. Well, excitement you know, can uh, be bad, right? You, like you could say when Mustafi gets the ball, I'm excited. Like I, I'm, ex- <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm terrified. That's a form of excitement. We have that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, there are players. There are players, defensive players that have been mentioned. You know that are. Well, there are many good players out there we just got it just depends on what you believe our transfer budget will be and then and then what we'll actually end up actually doing i think you agree that we need to get younger i mean i mean do you think that let's just quickly touch on sales i mean mustafi has to go i assume you agree with that yes yeah i i think if i said to you know listener on this podcast they're not stupid we can all rattle off the names really really quickly they're Mm -hmm. gonna go we know Check Litsteiner, Jenkinson, El Nenny. Um, potentially, you go into the um, maybe Kashelny, maybe Mustafi, Kashelny, sorry, maybe Kishelny, Ozil if we Monreal, can. Mm-hmm. Monreal, Ozil. Mm-hmm. These are all the names that are in. They're they're, they're to be debated. Well, let right? me ask if you the big one. Go. The the big one is: Would you sell either of the strikers if the right offer came in? It. it I wouldn't say that's in an impossibility um i i think i would rather not if i'm honest with you i i like those two um but i could go against some of the things i've actually previously said because i i love patrick Vieira, but we sold him and i felt too soon i love gilbert but we took him out of the team too soon in my opinion but in hindsight it was the right time you always want him to go a year too soon rather than a year too late and we've got too many that are dying on our pitch. And it, it can't happen. It's not how you run a football club. It just can't happen. Now, if Arsenal were able to get a couple of wide forwards and move to a structure that me and you would both like to see earlier, um, and, but the only way we could do that is by selling one of our central forwards and then buying a, a second centre forward to help provide funds for the wide forwards that we need to buy. I can't say that's the wrong thing because that's that's what I want to see. You know, we can't play two forwards every week in the structures that we need to play because we can't always load that midfield in that that we like to do against certain teams. So either we stay with them by a third forward who's who's a winger that could also play in a central area or we decide, no, we're going to now cut the cord. We're going to move to a structure and a style that we truly want to buy into rather than try to fudge our way through to the Champions League. Yeah. Well, I mean, I 
I'm fine fudging our way to the Champions League. I just don't know that we can. Um, yeah. So well, we tried it this year. It didn't happen, did it? We tried it this year. We tried to to fudge this group through to Champions League, and we we blew it. We blew it. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think about some of the comments that have been coming out from Granite Shaka? Let's just sort of end on this. I mean, he he's an interesting one. He gave an interview very, very recently. In fact, I'm seeing the quotes for the first time as we're recording this, so I apologize to you if you have not seen them. Um, but, you know, talking about our season, you know, the, the, the thing that's interesting, it, two things. One, he says, in an objective way, we can say that reaching the Europa League final and finishing fifth in the league is a successful campaign. Then he says, but I don't look at it that from that perspective. I look at the season from an emotional perspective. When you're fighting for a place in the CL and end up losing as many unnecessary games we did, you cannot be satisfied. That, that's why I'm not pleased with our campaign. So a little bit um, uh, contradictory there. But then he says, yeah. between Arson and Unai, both are extremely professional and meticulous in their work. A small contrast is that Arson looked, always looked for playful solutions, whereas Unai acts out of a good defensive order. Um I mean, people are going to seize on that line, I think, in particular. Uh, people, when I say people, I mean me, obviously. Hysterical idiots. Yeah. Um, but, like, I mean, we, we gave up a ton of goals. I don't know that we were particularly defensive. People want to buy into this narrative that, that Unai tends to be a little more conservative and defensive in nature. I mean, how do you read into those comments? First from Shaka saying, you know, in some ways this is a successful season, finishing fifth and making the, the EL final, and then sort of talking about Unai having an instinct that's more out of a defensive order. I, I don't think anyone could argue with that. I think you, you, you'll look at the absolutes and say, well, we we conceded 51 goals last season. We conceded 51 goals this season. So was he done? And I will then, I could counter that and say, well, Monreal's a year older and a year worse. Koscielny is a year older and literally walking around the pitch with a, with a set of crutches on. M- Mustafi's Mustafi. Socrates was a new player that's come in and it's done uh, 7 out of 10. The goalkeeper's probably give us 7.5 out of 10. And, but you wouldn't say that a goalkeeper was a massive issue the year before we had Peter Cech. So, but he's been an improvement to our, in our team, in my opinion. Um, we brought in a 34-year-old free transfer right back. We lost our right back with a season-ending injury. We lost our promising centre-half with a season-ending injury. So there are mitigating circumstances for those numbers and I do think to maybe the way Emery responds to that adversity is to be a little bit more cautious in the centre of the pitch where maybe Wenger may have loaded up the offensive areas and said I want to try and score my way out of this Mm -hmm. right but I think we scored a similar number of goals last season I think maybe one different this season I think we scored one less we conceded the same but we would we have over, we over, I mean, look, I, I don't want to go XG crazy here, but I will say we, okay. we dramatically overperformed our XG this season. We Our shots yeah. were way down. Our big chances were way down. Our XG was way down. Now, again, i not which saying this is the only thing Shaka that matters. Said. Just pointing yeah, it out. Which mirrors what Shaka said. I think we will we'll try to maybe hold games, control games, rather than to play our way out the games. Hence why we took a lot of slapping against the big teams when in the Venger eras, but against the lower teams who, who were a bit afraid to play us, we could outscore them and outplay them. You know, and that's how he chose to to break free. So I think you know, I, I think Shaka's a very interesting player. I think what he says there I totally get. We can decide how we want to accept it and absorb that information. But he's an interesting player because I actually think he's quite pivotal. Or he could be, in many for different reasons, 
is he pivotal for us as a footballer? Right, because if we want to get to where we're going, or where I think we need to go, he's right in the middle of this. Does he help carry the bags to for another year? Or do we say, no, that's not enough. We need more agility, more speed, because we're not getting the defensive protection. We're not getting the chance creation. We're not getting all the passes we thought he would get. Although I thought he had a good game in the final. Mm. But there's a limit to this guy. There's a ceiling to this guy. Do I sell now where I can still get the 30 mil? And then up them upgrading with somebody who can give me some real decisiveness in midfield and carrying of the ball and size and physicality and dominance and move Torreira back to the base of the team and do it that way around or Grinduzi to the base. These are decisions that we have to make. So Shaka is talking and acting like potentially our new captain. But actually, does a player like that actually hold us back from getting to the style that I think we need to get to? And that's a real good debating point. Yeah, yeah. I just think, like, do- doesn't it seem just a little tone deaf to you? I mean, the saying, hey, we had, we mostly achieved our goals with this and, you know, we had a more defensive yeah, outlook. I mean, he's it's on, just he's tone on, deaf more than anything. He's on, he's on international duty talking about Nations League and they've asked him a question and he's given an answer. I mean, to be honest, he's given a lot more than most players normally give. Yeah. Just <laughs> to, you have to take in content. When they sit down when we've written journalists and they do written pieces, that's the time to really read and look between the lines. Because that's a fair point. Really, yeah, I mean, really these guys are a lot of these guys are media trained within an inch of their life, and so if they're asked a question off the cuff, it's really hard because they're trying to come up with a platitude, you know. And a lot of times, it doesn't the dots don't connect. I, I think people can read into this stuff too much. The one thing that you know I I think is clear, and we can sort of wrap up here, is that going into next season, um. There are certain players that I think are are really on their last legs with Arsenal fans based on their performance this season and maybe before that. And, mm. you know, I, the, the manager himself obviously really has, I think, a lot to prove. I mean, even if you're still on board with him, this next season is no joking around. He's got a lot to prove. I think a player like Shaka is a great example of someone where I don't know how much goodwill is, goodwill is left for him, if any. You know, this is a guy that was a really important part of the squad, and I think people wanted to see him as having the qualities we needed. And I, I'm starting to think that ship has sailed. And, you know, while I could see an Ozil going, and, and we know all the older players that are going to go, Shaq is probably going to be in the se- in the team again next season and probably going to be starting a lot of games. And yeah, he, he's one uh, of those I'm players a- who has to make a big step up. And I just don't, I, I don't know if I believe that, that he has the skills for that. And with Ganduzi breathing down his neck and Torreira being the future midfield... That's a player that you look at and you say, is this one of those cases of we overrate the players that are in our team and, and we need to move on from him? Yeah, exactly what we just sort of touched on. I, I do. I swear on this one, Elliot. I really do. I swear on it. But it all depends on what happens around him. Because if Ozil does go, you know, he Shaka is a player that's not... He, he's, he may have mental issues when it comes to under pressure and he derails on occasion on the pitch. But he, he's not afraid to play. And if you're losing Ramsey and Ozil from your central areas, I'm just not sure we can we can lose Shaka as well. I'm just not sure in one in one window. You know, if buts and maybe's, you need that player that's is just not afraid of of the moment. And I and I do think he has still got something to offer. But I don't think it's for more than one year. 
You know, I really don't. I think he has to help carry us through. Much like Aubameyang and Lacazette, Lacazette do. They carried us this season with their goal scoring and their assist making. And they, they allowed us to do much more than we should have done regarding goal scored. Shaka's got to do the same. And I just think we got to surround him with a little bit more speed. And, um, and we've got to surround him with a little bit more intensity. And we've also got to give him somebody to pass to. And it's not Meza Ozil. It's got to be maybe some people that can carry the ball in wide areas. And then suddenly his passing becomes incredibly important because he's moving the ball at pace to somebody that's got half a second more to control it and then drive at his man. And then suddenly you're looking at Shaq in a completely different line. If he's passing out to Kolasinic and he's having 44 touches and kicking it into the hot dog stand, then it's a different scenario. We don't look at Shaka in the same light. We look at our structure of attack. We look at what we do in wide areas. We look at everything all of above. And and I think it's important if we are going to keep someone like Shaka, we make sure we have we give him people to pass to. And I always think back to Xavi Alonso at Bayern Munich, a slow, steady centre midfielder that was quite cute in his positioning, but he got the ball, he had wing mirrors on, and he had Robin Ribery to pass to, and he did it about 400 times a game, and they had overlapping fullbacks, and they got to European finals, etc. So it can be done. It just depends on your structure and your setup. Mm. Well, our structure and our setup is perfect. It's flawless, really. So I'm not. I'm not too concerned about it. Everything's going to be fine. Um, top to bottom in the yeah, club. Top yeah. to bottom. Absolutely perfect. It it definitely does feel, and I hate to end on this note, but it does feel as you you go on Twitter, you read the blogs, you read the news, you look at interviews that like we sort of look like the clown club at the moment. Now, don't get me wrong. United are you know, hiring ex-players to do everything at their place and spending money on players they don't need and getting rid of players they probably could use. And Chelsea have a transfer ban and maybe losing Sarri, who just got them all their goals that they wanted to achieve to bring in Frank Lampard. And Spurs are probably going to lose their manager, Eden Hazard's off from Chelsea. I mean, there's a lot of weird things happening. Next, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me at all next season if like, Spurs, Chelsea, and Arsenal drop down the table and like Wolves and, and Everton are in the top four or something. I mean, there's there's some interesting changes that may happen in the Premier League before the big clubs kind of get their shit together, especially us. I mean, that that's the thing, Clive. I think patience is a virtue that few football fans have. And understandably, look, I mean, we all have work and lives and things that, you know, aren't always perfect. And football is the the place where we dump all our hopes and our dreams and our expectations and our frustrations it's where we can get unnecessarily angry or exuberantly excited i mean it it brings us all of the distractions um and i just think that unfortunately i don't know that arsenal is going to give us a lot of the high moments in the near future it may be unai emery that gets the finger pointed at him for that but i think given the structure mm. at the club right now i don't i don't know that many other people could do any better and He's here to stay, at least for now, so we'll see what, what he achieves. I think uh, we'll do a more thorough transfer pod in the near future. We'll have some stuff for Patreon with that also, but uh, I think we can leave it there. Good long chat, good good perspective in the wake of sort of a downbeat end of the season, unfortunately. But I'm sure that the club will uh, wow us with their summer moves, and I look forward to discussing them with Clive. You can find him on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. And by the way, do give us a five-star review. I want to say that, you know, every once in a while we look through the re reviews, and apart from everybody saying they hate me, which, you know, duh, um, we're really appreciative. And and for those of you who take the time to listen, to write reviews, uh, it, it means a lot to us. So thank you for that. I um, just want to express that stamp, that point. Um, so, gosh, how are we going to end this pod? We don't... 
don't have another game for a while. Um, there'll be some exciting news about the summer, by the way. Uh, live event that I will be telling you about, but not yet. So that news can will I, be coming. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Can I say something? Yeah. I, I think um, I, I, I would like to say as we come towards the end of the season, like, um, we are we are incredibly fortunate with our listeners. I know everyone says it, but we really are. The the Discord channel and the guys on Twitter that reach out to us. I mean, I, I think almost all of them are really really thoughtful, and they remember everything we say. They really they really come. That's at the us worst with part. <laughs> they really come at us with depth and quality, and 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 in most of the time respect. And I you don't often get that. You don't often get that. Or and, it's, um, <laughs> and I think it's something that we should never take for granted. And I, for one, really, really, really appreciate it because we we do put our time into this and we do try to think it through and we do try to give some insights. And it's really nice to know that people um, appreciate it. Yeah, that's well said. Um, and and I, I echo it. And I, I know I speak for Paul and Tim, who never want me speaking for them, but I'm doing it. And Scott, of course, as well. So I don't have a really good outro, but let's just do it this way. Uh, we appreciate you. We love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Transfer market nil. 